Welcome to Conspiracy Cafe. I'm your host, George Freund. We're with you now. We're with you to the end. And we always hope the end will be a long, long, long time away because we're making a difference where it matters. Right here, right now, on that channel in Toronto, the Point of the Sword Conspiracy Cafe. We have a very special show and a very special guest tonight. We have Judith Berry Baker to talk to us about Lee Harvey Oswald, who wasn't really a Harvey, just Lee Oswald. And we want to bring some facts and points to your attention and some other things we want to bring to your attention, of course, is the world hasn't stopped spinning because we have a special guest. The United States, if we can show the big screen, Hugh, uh, and just do a couple of quick news clips for people so they can duck and cover when they're supposed to duck and cover, is we have a national FEMA first ever nationwide emergency alert drill going on November the 9th, which is a 9-11 backwards, 2011 at 2 p.m., first time ever. And uh, considering uh, the Cold War and some of the mistakes that have happened with pushing buttons and all that sort of thing, I think we should pay very careful attention to that. Keep an eye on the conspiracy-cafe.com org or net website. And uh, one of the other uh, little things, of course, we have this big parade forming around the world with uh, our Occupy Wall Street. Be very, very careful about mobs forming and changing the whole status quo of nations. This is a picture from the 1917 <coughs> revolution. You see the same pattern. One time, very shortly, they may have a fearless leader that you can see on the website coming up. In that day, it was Lenin. And then, of course, uh, we did play with the redundant Scrabble code. <laughs> and uh, CBS made a good thing about it. When they have these innocuous stories that mean nothing and they go around the world, that's usually a secret message. So CBS had this up for a time portion, then they removed it. It says Jahr in German, year. And then when you add up the numbers on the Scrabble, that's 12. 2012 is next year. Turo is an inflationary euro. And DES is uh, encryption code. That's telling you something, people. 2012 is where it's going to be at. And the G is missing. So maybe Germany won't be involved in the uh, economic tsunami that's expected. That's something important. You should know some of these things because your life depends on things you can pick up here. This show is brought to you by myself and some of our volunteer sponsors. And we have a couple that really stepped up to the plate after the uh, last show. So we're going to be doing very, very well in the near future. And we appreciate that. So tonight, without further ado, we're going to go back in time to a time when I was only six years old and I saw the world change before my eyes even though I didn't really understand what the world was before my eyes but I knew there were certain things that the President of the United States was an important person and the <coughs> fact that somebody could shoot him and kill him in the street in the middle of the day under the security apparatus of the Secret Service and such like that was just bone chilling so I just dropped everything on the floor plopped myself down on the floor, started watching television and watching the news coverage and taking it all in and even knowing as a child that the world was never going to be the same again in my whole life. And it's not. And even now, many, many years later, where I'm old enough to be a grandfather, things are not the same. We have lost control so of the United States of America and pretty much the world in a coup d'etat that just riveted us right to our bones. And unfortunately, these orchestrators of this plot with us. did a very good job in eliminating and silencing witnesses. So to have a witness alive and well and here today to come and tell us some of the truth 
about what really happened that day. And the most important truth is, as people who follow conspiracy shows know, that usually the assassin is a fall guy or a patsy 99 times out of 100. Guaranteed, and this is no difference. They made up stories for people who are in the Kennedy assassination uh, genre. I got into it in school, in high school, where, you know, you start hearing about the magic bullet theory and bullets that smash into things and come out pristine and such like that, that you know you're being sold hogwash. And that seemed to be a very sociably acceptable thing until September 11th, when the world changed again, and the same people right away started talking about the Kennedy assassination for something. And even though I'm not a rocket scientist, I realized right away that those are probably the same. Because what difference does it make to 9-11 whether or not you believe Kennedy was assassinated by a cabal or by a lone assassin? That has nothing to do with it unless the same people are orchestrating the show and still today. So without further ado, we introduce to you a very special person who was a very special person to Lee Oswald, Judith Very Baker. How do you do? How do you do? Welcome aboard. Thank you, know, you. We commend you for all the work and effort you put into this. As we discussed before the show, it's, uh, it's not a money-making venture, and a lot of time <laughs> there's a little bit of pain involved, physical, emotional, and all that sort That's of right. thing. And, uh, you know, I've been down the trail, you've been down the trail, but the most important thing is what we're fighting for is the truth and we want to undo what was done a long time ago to us. I want to leave this planet the way I came here so that my children, their grandchildren, and everybody's children and grandchildren are free to be what they want to be without this tentacle monster all over us. So start to tell us a little bit about yourself so that uh, oh. our people can, uh, can appreciate the fine lady you are. What part do you want to hear about? Well, two big things. Well, of course, we have to know, you know, how things came together with Lee, okay. and we'd like to know a lot about your uh, involvement in the Castro assassination, developing cancer weapons okay. and such, because I still believe they're used today. Oh, yes, they, I, I'm certain they are. Um, first of all, the, for anyone out there who thinks that cancer uh, couldn't be cured by now, you're wrong. Okay, you've been sold a bill of goods. It's so profitable to treat cancer, it's so unprofitable to cure it. And you're not gonna see people who run uh, hospitals that are run for profit, for example, going ahead and lose their customers. It's, it's horrible what's happened. Uh, back in the, at, by the end of the 1960s, we could have been able to cure cancer, many different kinds of cancer. Instead, we're using primitive medieval methods, uh, rip it out, you know, burn it out, chemo it out. And uh, frankly, that's not the way to get rid of cancer. There are many other ways that won't hurt you, but my God, they're much cheaper. What do you think is the most effective way? Well, first of all, everybody out there should understand that, that certain things that you do in your diet will have a great deal to do with the outcome of your life. You, this virus, uh, there's a virus that probably you're carrying. If you had the polio vaccine or your parents did, that vaccine was contaminated with the SV40 monkey virus. And the monkey virus caused cancer in a plethora of mammals. We're mammals. But they say, oh no, we can't get it. I don't know if you've ever had herpes or a cold sore once in your life. 
Well, you know that that's a, a virus that's in your system and it sits latently there, but eventually many people get shingles. It breaks out around their, usually around their waist or sometimes in other parts of their body and it causes excruciating pain and it's the same virus, but it stayed latent in your system for a long time. Well, this virus that causes cancer, we have an epidemic right now and if you look at the book, it's called Dr. Mary's Monkey. It'll tell you how uh, we were working in New Orleans with the SV40 monkey virus uh, trying to do, first of all, it started with this contaminated polio vaccine. They knew it was contaminated. They had a shelf upon shelf, box upon box of it, stacks upon stacks. And they said, we're going to give it to the American people and we're going to give it to people in Russia and we're going to give it to people in Europe anyway. We'll find a cure for cancer before they get it because it'll stay late in their system for maybe a decade or so and then we'll, by then we'll have a cure. We had Richard Nixon come along and say, mm-hmm, we've got something here. You know, we've got money, we've got power. Pulls all the uh, ideas and all the great research about cancer over to Fort Detrick, where it vanishes. By the way, by then you have big pharma, make, they're making big, uh, gigantic machines to go and deliver uh, radiation to you. They're telling people to get mammograms, squash your breast, and, and get, get it burned to see, you know, what's inside. And if you didn't have cancer, if you have 10 or 15 of those, you will. So that's what you got. Or you can on. go on an airplane nowadays yeah, yeah, and get scanned. Yeah, that's right. You can see your, like your Schwarzenegger, you know, you can see the, the skeleton of it going, walking through there. You can't keep bar bombarding the human body with, with uh, materials like that and expect it not to have a, a re an, an onerous result. The uh, other thing, they, they're pushing sugar, they're pushing monosodium glutamate, they're pushing all these additives. Many of them are carcinogenic. You cannot keep eating and drinking um, something with uh, NutraSweet in it. Uh, NutraSweet itself has caused cancer in mice. That was all covered up. Uh, a board, when the board was going to uh, approve or disapprove it, it was packed with people who would uh, approve it. There was money under the table and it never ever should have been approved at all. I would never. I have friends here who drink the stuff and it makes me sick to watch them drink it because it's not going to make you lose weight. We now know that the body tries to protect itself from it. Actually, you gain weight, you try to, uh, fat will accumulate around those kind of molecules to try to protect the body from it. There's a lot out there that is wrong with our food, our water. We have fluoride in the water in so many places. They've banned it mostly in Scandinavia. But this, for example, people don't think about this, broken hips. You know, we didn't used to have old women with broken hips. You had people in Japan, 90-year-old women climbing trees, you know, get fruit down from it, things like that. Um, but we do now because fluoride softens your bones. It makes your bones softer and you have a lot of weight bearing there on the hip and it's chalky. And if they would analyze the bone tissue from these people with broken hips, they'll find this loaded with fluoride. Fluoride is easier for the body to pick up when there's no calcium around. So if you're not getting enough calcium and you're drinking the fluoridated water, bingo, you've got it in your bones, just like that. We did, used to do experiments with rats and we gave them a lot of fluoride and their teeth turned to chalk and broke off. Oh, goody. Yeah, and, you know, bow legs and things like that. Now you have it in the water, then you've got it in your, you cannot find a mouthwash without it, then you've got it in your toothpaste, all right? And on top of that, you've got fluoride in your tea. So you've got fluoride all over the place and it's way too much.
that's just one example. And I know we got a little off the subject, but it's something close to my heart. That's okay. The lives we save will appreciate it greatly. A lot of people don't know these things, and they eat the poisons. They it's suffer horrible. the consequences, but you can change your diet. You can live. Yeah, and, and as for that white chemical, this white powdery chemical called sugar, it is a chemical. You're just, you know, when you're adding sugar to your body, that's something that never was in nature. It was never intended for you to eat like that. It, only in the most minuscule amounts, like nectar from a flower. And here you're pouring this chemical down your throat. Cancer loves sugar, and it grows. It, you have to add sugar. If you're growing it in a test tube, you have to add, basically, you have to add some kind of sugar to, the, to it for it to grow. That's not true of uh, some cells, for example, that do photosynthesis. All they need is sunlight. This cancer cell inside of you needs two things, not much oxygen and a whole bunch of sugar. If people also, we have so much pollution, the amount of oxygen we actually have in the air is, let, we have a smaller percent of oxygen in the air now than when I was born or you were born. That means you have to wear a mask now, a gas mask, an oxygen mask, to climb Mount Everest, okay, and if you don't want to really pass out. Uh, it's like we're about 50 feet higher now in elevation everywhere. What does this mean? Basically, it means that if you've got 19% oxygen in your atmosphere, uh, you're going to not do quite as well as if you had 20. And we're going down to 18, 17 in cities, sometimes 14%. That's enough to knock you out if you have a lot of carbon monoxide around. So people can get very sickly. Why am I talking about this? Because cancer is anaerobic. It doesn't like oxygen. If, you, if people who had cancer were kept in oxygen tanks while they're being treated, you're, with their bodies suffused with oxygen, the, the cancer cells can't grow under those conditions. So it would be very, more difficult for it to grow. But instead, they, they never do that kind of thing. You know, that's cheap. That yes. doesn't cost much. I call it slow motion genocide. Yeah, well, it's disgusting. And they do it on and many fronts. it breaks fronts. my heart. I wanted to cure cancer. My grandma died of it. My grandfather eventually died of lung cancer. And I was young, but that's what I d dedicated my life to. And I learned later, of course, you know, I was kicked out of this because at one point I objected to the use of prisoners who volunteered to be injected with this cancer-causing material we were working with. And if it worked, they'd die. <laughs> they weren't told that. And when I objected, I was kicked out of the cancer research community. Wow. Well, that's just the beginning of what's in me and Lee. There's a lot in there. Well, that's what I find the whole substance matter is. It's like we got all these German scientists through Operation Paperclip, <laughs> yep. and they just went right back to the good old days. And well, they don't have do, any ethics, uh, and, and it permeated our... We had lovely doctors who would go and visit you, visit you at your home. We had doctors who cared. You know, they'd be up all night with somebody who might be dying. Now, the doctor runs in one minute before a baby is born from his golf game, grabs the baby, you know, and says, great job, goes back out and gives you... a you know, you have to pay $3,000 for his two-minute visit. So it's, it's a whole different ball game, And you can't blame them. I mean, after all, they have to, uh, they can't be subsidized anymore. Every, all these kids are in debt up to, uh, past their nostrils, you know, student loan debt. They can't get a decent education. Yet, how is it that a tiny country like Sweden, nine million people, the same kind of population you have here in Toronto, they, their kids go to college for free. It's free college education. They only have to pay for books. And the only reason they pay for books is because they don't want the state subsidizing certain books. It's a fantastic system, 
and they call it socialism. I want to tell you, it's, it's actually a democracy because the people vote for these things. They vote for the things they want. Well, part of what I've said recently with the Occupy Wall Street thing, there's nothing wrong with capitalism and there's nothing wrong with socialism. No. What usually is wrong is the, it's the people running the show. If you've got crooked people running the show, it doesn't matter yes. what system you have, it's going to be corrupt. Exactly. And, and uh, this thing about power, here we go with the Occupy Wall Street. Where did that come from? They're reacting and they're responding to the same hideous things that began with the Kennedy uh, murder. And in fact, some of the, I could name the names, but I really want to stay alive a little bit longer. But you know who I'm talking about when I say we have people that were the, the Nixon administration before and after Kennedy and with L Lyndon Johnson. And those names have come up and a lot of them are associated with banking and with Wall Street to this very day. They're still there. Just go back and do your homework, folks. Look up all these people on the, the administration, the young, the young lawyers he had, see where they are today. They all got rewarded for, for following the big man and the big bucks and killing Kennedy. Okay, so when you went to uh, New Orleans, you went there as a researcher to cure cancer and then you were yeah, seconded somehow to make a weapon to yeah. kill Castro. Well, How I was only work? 19 years old, uh, which means I was, I know now that that meant that it would not be easy to trace me. I would have, even if I talked about it, who would believe me? But in the book, uh, I explain how I was mentored by extraordinary scientists such as Dr. Howard um, Deal. He was a vice president of the American Cancer Society in research. He personally uh, looked over the work I was doing and, and helped me to design better projects and so, so on for almost two years. And there was Dr. George Moore who worked with me for almost a year altogether, uh, nine, 90 days personally in his own lab, working with the monkey virus with these um, various uh, friends virus and so on. Yes, viruses can cause cancer. You haven't heard that for a long, long time until finally they have the papilloma virus and they've got this vaccine, you know, to uh, stop that kind of cancer. Well, let me tell you, there are many vaccines that could have been developed to stop cancer. Instead, we're getting vaccines for other reasons and we don't know what's in them. And it's not very good. It's, it's a frightening thing. I wouldn't take any of these vaccines. I wouldn't take a mammogram. And, but you have to know enough about medicine to uh, avoid some of those things, you know, know what to do. Well, you have to be your own doctor to a great extent and you have to say no. Absolutely. Because I know one time when I was in the hospital, they wanted to put me in an infectious disease place. Oh, no. <laughs> because they didn't have any room before. And, you know, you'd ask the question, well, why is that bed empty now? Uh, because the guy in there died. <laughs> well, of what? <laughs> I can't remember anymore, but that's all I know is I don't have an infectious disease and I don't want one, so uh, I think I'll just go home. Well, the hospitals <laughs> have become filthy. At one time, hospitals had black lights in them, and so did the uh, ships, and we've forgotten, because once we got our antibiotics, they got rid of the black lights. Black lights actually, just like sunlight, just bleaches out, kills a lot of viruses, kills a lot of stuff. They actually put black lights in, now into uh, big buildings in their ventilation systems so they don't get Legionnaire disease anymore and things like that. But they don't put the black lights in the hospitals, okay, because that means some rooms have to be empty for a little while while they're being treated. If you take a black light into a hospital, you can close any hospital in Toronto or anywhere else in the world, turn off the lights, put on the black light, it'll show you where all the germs and bacteria are, and it's disgusting what you can find. In a, we closed a hospital down just with a black light. We did this in, um, in Richmond, Texas, Rosenberg, Texas. 
because they were doing other things that were wrong, and this is the only way we could close them down. But if you went in any hospital, you can see it's the urine splashed up on the sides of building uh, of the uh, walls and in, in the lavatories. You can see particles of vomit that weren't wiped off walls, all kinds of horrible things. And it's just, it's a very dirty environment. Oh, and Modern then some. hospitals, they don't, they don't clean them properly. Well, that's the first thing that gets the cutbacks yeah. is the cleaning staff. So you can be the best yeah. surgeon in the world, but if all the cleaners are gone and you're in an infectious environment, all your surgery is for naught. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's, it's just well, amazing what they, and the doctors tried to sell me too on this, well, we'll give you all these antibiotics. And I go, well, you did that with the last guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's and dead. And they develop all those, uh, you know, immunities and, and resistance uh, to whatever. So anyway, uh, for everybody out there, I just want to say that take good care of yourself, but you can't avoid this bad air. You can't, it's hard to avoid the bad water. You can't even, you buy water in plastic bottles and you're still going to get carcinogens. You've got to look at the recycle. If that recycling uh, label says one, that means you can only use it once. Don't touch it because it's already leached all this stuff into it, PVCs and things that can really hurt you. Uh, I don't know. It's very difficult to avoid uh, hurt, harming yourself in the present environment that we have. From one end of, of the spectrum to the other, it's quite difficult. I know that in Sweden and Scandinavia in general, uh, and I seem to talk about that a lot, but it's because, for example, they have socialized medicine there, and if people aren't treated right, they, they uh, vote them off the board and get somebody else. And with socialized medicine, it's just fantastic. Uh, my friend George there, uh, he had terrible cancer, and they had to beg him to come in. To, he was afraid to get his operation. But his operation, uh, he had a complete operation to, to remove cancerous materials. He had chemotherapy, he had radiation. He was in the hospital for altogether six weeks, and it cost him $150. Okay. Why? Because he paid taxes when he was working. And the taxes are, don't even cost near what it does for our insurance policies, so-called health, health policies, where they decide whether or not they'll let you have a certain operation or not. You That's know. the big thing, if yep. they let you have it. Yes. So, so they, they become your boss. So uh, when did they approach you to start uh, turning some of the goodness into badness? Well, I was anti-Castro, big time in Florida, because I was going to University of Florida. I was working in some uh, lab work. I had been assigned to try and make cancer more deadly. It's right in the newspapers. And... Um, I was told that I should work on this. It was malignant melanoma that I was, uh, had been working with, along with Dr. Oxner, Alton Oxner. He's publishing material, and some of that material, you know, I gave him information on, for example. And so uh, Oxner's um, invited me eventually to New Orleans, but just before I went, um, I had been dating a young man, and we decided we'd get married if he showed up. I mean, it wasn't even that strong a thing. But previously to that, um, it went just before I, when I was in high school, a couple years earlier, I'd been dating Tony Lopez Frisquet, and he was the son of the finance minister of Cuba, and, and that finance, and that was Cuba under Castro. So we have uh, Tony telling me, one day he's in a lab with me, and I'm working on stuff, and, and I've got the Bunsen burner here, I'm, I'm sterilizing materials, okay, working on mice and everything. I gave cancer to mice lung cancer to mice in seven days in my high school lab. That's why two Nobel, Nobel Prize winners inspected it. That's why you had the uh, 
Dr. Ochsner flew in to inspect my work, and after they looked at it, and he said, wow, you did it. We haven't been able to do that in other labs, and, you know, with millions of dollars. They closed my lab down because it was too dangerous. Okay, and then they invited me to New York and all that kind of thing. But I'd been at science fairs and won big prizes and so on before that. So anyway, Tony's telling me he picks up the Bunsen burner and sticks it under his armpit. I said, oh, I pulled it away from him. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I just wanted just an instant to see what it felt like because Castro hung up CIA agents by their wrists and used blow torches under their armpits. So he told me all these horrible tales. And then we had the Cuban Missile Crisis just before, just six months before I came to New Orleans. So when uh, Dr. Oxner said, what do you think about Castro? I said, I hate his guts. You know, I said, fine, we want you. You know, that's, that's because the project we're working on, you'll find out more about. One of the hints he gave me after I was in New Orleans, he said this, you know, right now we have a problem. We, we'd like, if you inject cancer into somebody, say you want to kill them, um, Right now, we, the problem is the cancer is not strong enough. The lymphatic system will sort it out and sift it out and get rid of it because your immune system will take care of that. And he said, unless you inject them with a pint of cancer cells. And he said, nobody's going to let Castro get injected with a pint of cancer cells. So then, in his own way, he told me what that was about. The others told me, of course, a lot more. He would never himself commit himself to saying, any more about the project than that, but that's all they had to tell me. So our project was working with this SV40 monkey virus. We t uh, part of a ring of labs that was set up where, imagine you take a, a mouse, after seven days as a weanling mouse, it has been subjected to radiation, so its immune system goes down. You, you go and inject the poor thing with this enhanced uh, virus that causes cancer Seven days later, it's carrying around a tumor as big as its own body, just trying, all right, you cut the poor thing open after you, you euthanize it, and you have 50 mice at a time, and you're looking, and some of the, the, the tumors are bigger than others, and you choose those, the biggest ones. You take those tumors, macerate them, you, you separate out, you start tissue culturing some of them for side effects, but you, the big batch, you get the virus out again, and you get those... Uh, uh, the carrier uh, cells and all that, and you subject them to more radiation, next time the mice come around, the tumors are even bigger. And it, we made, this has been going on for a year. So by the end, we, we, the, the su suffering animals and the stench and, uh, of the, the kind of cancer this was, which originally started out like a pancreas, from the pancreas, and then it, it was developed in the lung. The idea was to give castro lung cancer with an injection, just a simple injection would have done it if his immune system was down. How do you do that? You get a technician to stand him and once a year he'd go and get his lungs and everything x-rayed. Turn it up, he would never know if it all got turned up and he got zapped with something that make him, you know, look fluoresce in the middle of the night and he wouldn't know it. So that was the plan. We had many disgruntled uh, doctors who were upset that they could no longer train their kids or their uh, themselves in the United States, and instead they're being sent to Russia, and they're not, their income was cut off. They didn't. They had an ordinary income because now they're communists, you know. So we had uh, a lot of cooperation, and uh, Dr. Oxner had trained some of these people, and they were willing to do what they could to make sure that Castro would uh, die. Castro had, uh, however, very special doctors around him. 
the CIA had tried many times to kill Castro. They tried bazookas. They tried. They talked about exploding seashells uh, uh, because Castro liked to dive in, in the sea. They even had a diving suit that had botulism in it. You know, so they tried. They were trying biological means to try and get rid of Castro. Castro smoked a cigar all the time. He's smoking cigars, and the idea was, hey, if we give, if we can get lung cancer to him. It's, it's natural, absolutely natural. Nobody will ever say the CIA did it, you know, or that uh, anybody, any of the doctors that might have been suspicious did it. He got cancer from smoking his cigars. So it, it was a viable idea. And since we had Castro aiming his nuclear warheads at my family in Florida and all that, I was willing to go along with that. What I didn't realize is once you have this thing developed, they're not going to throw it away. They've got the thing, and they're going to use it again and again and again. And we have instances of galloping cancer, sudden cancer, in person after person, the most famous being Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby is the one who shot Lee Oswald in the presence of 70 Dallas police. He shot my Lee. Excuse me. Jack Ruby knew him, and he didn't want to do it, but he had to. He even called a couple of times saying, we're going to shoot him. We're going to kill him. They still trotted him out, you know, on the signal, and uh, he had to go forward and shoot Lee. And uh, here comes the time when they say, well, Jack Ruby, you're going to have to go and uh, have a retrial because the first time you were saying you were crazy, you know, and we know now the psychiatrists, they say, no, that's not true. You need to be, have a retrial. And now his mouth is getting a little loose. His lips are getting a little loose. Suddenly, he's complaining that he's being injected with cancer cells. Why would he know such a thing? He'd visited our lab in New Orleans. It's all in the book, okay? He knew about the lab. He knew that you have to have a special needle. You see, if you use a regular needle to try and inject cancer cells, the bore is too small. They'll get clogged up. You have to use a big bore needle. It's going to be painful. You have to inject it into the bloodstream. Now, he knew he wasn't getting a penicillin shot when he was injected into a vein with a big needle that hurt. He knew he was getting cancer cells. He complained about it. The man who did it was a doctor from Chicago. That's related to Dr. Mary Sherman from Chicago that we were working with in New Orleans. By the way, Mary Sherman later um, was murdered, and I think you know what happened there. Uh, on July 21st, 1963, three, uh, four, this is when the Warren Commission came to New Orleans to get testimonies. Her, she was front page news because she was, her naked body was found with a fire going on and she had multiple stab wounds and her right arm was missing. That's enough to shut a lot of people up. It's front page, you know. Here, hey Mary, we want to get your testimony. Well, uh, Mary's over there with no arm and she's dead. Oh, gee. Well, what about Guy Bannister? Well, last month, just a month ago, Guy Bannister was found dead, and he was naked too. Wow. Oh, no, he died of a heart attack. Well, why, why has he got a bullet hole in his back? Oh, we, the coroner's not going to talk about that, okay? Well, what about Hugh Ward? We know that Hugh Ward was working with Lee Oswald. And maybe he can talk. No, a month before Guy Bannister, Hugh Ward went down with the former mayor, the Lesseps Morrison, who also knew about Lee Oswald, they went down in a crash in Mexico. They're gone too. 
Okay, everybody, who's going to tell us about Lee Oswald in New Orleans? Come on, come on. We're all, all these people know all this stuff. Why, if they, so many people know about it, they would have talked. No, they wouldn't. We're scared to death. I didn't talk. I was told if I talked, I'd be very sorry. I mean, I'd be dead. Well, that's what a lot of people yeah. seem to have a lot of difficulty understanding, is that the pressure that comes on a whistleblower, there's oh, no reward God. for this. So this no. is like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. It's a quick ride and a hard hitting into the ground. And, you know, not and, too many how, people are going to volunteer. And how many people see you do it. And not too many people see you yeah, do it. Yeah. So you have to talk uh, about a genre of people that are the, the best of the best. And one of the big reasons why I don't mind, uh, you know, getting a lot of background material on the weaponization of cancer as, as an assassination weapon is, you oh, know, for people here in Canada, you understand. For people outside of Canada, you probably don't know our politics all that well. But we were in a, in a place in a time where there was just ready to be a paradigm shift in leadership and potential leadership. And we had the leader of our uh, federal opposition party die suddenly of cancer. And the first thing that comes into my mind about having someone who was more popular than all the other candidates is just his party wasn't as popular as the other parties. But with a very, very little bit of effort, he could have been a new leader in Canada and put a lot of the uh, other leaders out of business instantly succumbing to a very powerful form of cancer. The first thing that jumps into my mind is they whacked him, and that's only just yep. using the old Roman dictum, qui bono, who benefits. And uh, the Prime Minister's lackluster uh, response to his death and, and the way he shamed him and put him off on news uh, statements uh, just added salt to the wounds as far as I was concerned because when they switched to him he wasn't even there and they just did the news from Afghanistan and our leader Jack Layton who was uh, you know called Taliban Jack for taking a stand against the war for corporations was ridiculed and uh, put down by mainstream media and the press and tried to be hung out to dry but people still voted for him people still loved him people still worked for him and uh, I would just love to have some of the best people in the world go over the evidence around his death and find out if they used the cancer weapon. And I wonder if the man sitting in Ottawa who may have orchestrated some of this stuff has the decency to at least shake and shiver a little bit if the people find out the truth. I'd like to tell you, thank you for these, inf that information, I'd like to tell you something about Jack Ruby. Um, after saying he was injected with cancer cells and all that, when he first came in, they said, oh, he's got a cough, you know, we've got to get him x-rayed. And they set, put him in the x-ray room for 45 minutes for one, um, supposedly one lung cancer photograph. And you know, those little dials were turned up for him. Then they, he just needs one more injection, you know, and he, he's got it. He's got the, the cancer. He understood what was happening. He died about uh, 29 days later from the cancer. And he had that they didn't diagnose it first. They said he just had pneumonia. Now, when they checked the cancer cells in his body, okay, they said, wow, he's got all this lung cancer. And um, they found the origin of it was from the pancreas. But he didn't have cancer of the pancreas. Okay? So we have all this going on. We found out this information. It was in the newspapers, and it's been rel relatively hidden. My friend, her name was Debbie Reynolds, just like the actress, and she was with me for a couple of weeks. She went back to her house finally, opened the door, and millions of flies poured out of the house. It's covered with maggots. It was up to one meter thick, deep. 
her entire house with human and dog feces. Her house had to be gutted. She lost all her furniture and things. She now lives with her, her mother. I've had horrible things happen to people who have helped me to get the information that, to prove what I, I'm talking about. And they've suffered the consequences. I lost my, my job. I lost my profession. I, lost, I uh, had a university that refused to read my dissertation because I was a notorious person. They, they, they won't tell you that. They'll say I, I couldn't get my committee together in time. That's because nobody would get on it. If you can't get on your committee, uh, how are you going to get your, so I'm an AVD. No, they say, you can't call yourself an AVD. You can't say you're all but dissertation. So they won't even let me call myself an AVD in English literature, even though I had a 3.9 average out of a 4.0 and, you know, had written everything up. And that's the way it goes. I tried to, to work in the United States. Um, uh, I remember when I was followed for three months by a white van. See, I spoke out first in 1999. I was followed by a white van, and three months later, he rammed right into me. Turned out, a Geico tried very hard to find who he was. Out who he was. But that man uh, gave everything was false information. I'm sitting there uh, unconscious in the car, and I finally wake up, and he's there. The car is dripping gasoline, you know, and the engine's running. And he says, get out of the car. You've got to get out of the car. It's, it's going to explode. This is terrible. And I thought, all I could think of is, oh, I take my seatbelt off. I won't get my insurance. I can never get another car, you know, or anything. Because you can't prove that, you know, that the injury came because you didn't have the seatbelt. And I, I refused in my day's condition. And then the police came and the fire trucks came. And this man said, no, speak English, need translator, <laughs> you know. All of a sudden, he couldn't speak a word of English. Turned out that he did tell them his profession. He was a professional driver who went at 40 miles an hour and ran me from behind with uh, here on uh, this side and on this side lanes that were open. And I was stopped at a red light, slammed me into, into, into oncoming traffic, got hit again, you know, like that, and off the road. Well, I went to the hospital and... Uh, Finally got out, you know, six months later. They let me back into teaching, okay? Six months later, I get a call saying, this is what I tried to get the book in, okay? You want to you have another accident? And uh, no, I didn't. It was 5.30 in the morning. And basically, they told me I'm supposed to withdraw my book, you know? Not in so many words, but something like, you know, what you've done recently, we don't want that, you know? But it was about, I just put the book in to a publisher. So I emailed the publisher, said, no book, no book, you know, that's it. I emailed people and they said, oh, come on, nothing's going to happen. It's just, don't be paranoid about this. So I went to school, went to work, came out, and a black van started following me. It was raining hard, followed me for about five miles. I tried to evade, evade it, and we were going under an underpass, and that black van pushed another car against me. I would have been killed, but there was a big wall of water because it had been raining that came up and stopped me from slamming into the concrete embankment there. I went to the hospital again, but I was terrified of losing my job, and somehow with my concussion and seeing double and everything else that was going on, I went to work. I collapsed at work and was taken away in an ambulance, and that was the beginning of my troubles, okay? That was just the beginning. I mean, we, we can go on and on. Finally had to leave the United States after getting out of a wheelchair twice, okay? And um, 
things like, I, I, I tried working on an Indian reservation even, and the FBI came and fingerprinted me four times. Well, then they didn't want me back. They wondered what kind of criminal I was. So that, that's the kind of thing that happens to you if you speak out. Um, what, all I also was given uh, an incentive. It was by telephone, but I believe it was real. Um, they said, if all you have to do, you know, is to say Lee Oswald killed Kennedy, then you'll be a rich woman. And they named a figure, you know, a certain amount of money. And uh, then a, a gentleman came by, you know, with a card. And uh, it, it, the card, it turned out, didn't, wasn't his name or anything. But anyway, I'm just telling you, if I contacted that person, you know, I'd get a lot of money. So um, I refused to do that, and it wasn't any time at all, you know. And they, some lady called my dog across the street, stuck a revolver in her head, mouth, and blew her head off. And then um, other bad things happened, and I couldn't take any more. My kids weren't talking to me. They were scared to death. Bad things happened to people who were my friends. One woman, a very dear, close friend of mine, helping me, trying to help me, she finds a dead baby floating in her pool with the baby was supposed to have somehow gone several blocks, gone up a high hill, knew the swimming pool was there behind the house, carried four toys, although the, the toys that, that this child had, only two hands. It couldn't have carried four toys because they were too big. The four toys floating in the, in the... She's really not been very active anymore in helping me. You can understand why. All this because I knew Lee Harvey Oswald, and I can attest to you, he did not kill Kennedy, that he actually, in 1999, I started telling people, this man saved Kennedy's life. He told me he did. Now, 60 Minutes trying to film this three times. I've got, we've got the emails. Of course, they flew me up there. They flew me up there several times. They flew me to Washington. They flew me to New Orleans. With the investigator in New Orleans, this was the wrong man. He sat there drinking bourbon, okay, and getting potted, would not go outside and go with me to all the different places to look at the evidence. Wrote back to 60 Minutes. She doesn't have any evidence in New Orleans. Okay, so fortunately I have a witness for that, Dr. Howard Platzman, who was with us. So um, this person then, very shortly after, becomes the head of the U.S. World and News Report magazine. Yes. Yeah, they well, most get of these, uh, you know, media people, the, the media to a great extent is a counterintelligence agency and it's kind of funny that you know you mentioned this great investigative report that he did was one of the ones we brought up on a previous show about Rupert Murdoch and a missing oh, child yeah. where they sent the you know so-called detectives from England to go investigate a sighting in Spain for a missing girl and uh, they did the same type of thing they just go to the local bar sit Drink. down get sloshed write a report and then when real reporters come along they find out they didn't check anything they that's didn't right. go anywhere and uh, that's all that these happened people, to me that's for sure they write science fiction yeah and this you know this book Lee, Lee and me this is bought with blood I want to tell you I'm not the only person that suffered because of it a bunch of us have but I'm grateful for my wonderful publisher his name is is uh, Robert Milligan that's uh, Chris Milligan of Trine Day this is a very brave man and uh, he knows they, they vetted this book they know that that I saved information for years, put it all together. I was just going to send it, to give it to my son. I, I, I was afraid. But finally, I saw the film JFK, and it says, if you're, you know, silence is like, makes a coward of you. And I'm not a coward. 
I may be scared, but I'm not a coward. And I loved him. And I realized after all this time, even though all this evidence is out there, that, that, that how can they go back to the Warren Commission? It's out of date. It doesn't have the new evidence. It doesn't have the witnesses. It's, un it's absolutely incredible. How can you have, there's a, a guy who always puts his stuff up about, you know, Oswald did it. When, when you put my name in, his, his stuff comes up about me first. I mean, he got a bunch of emails, shifted them around, uh, never met me, but he's written 85 or 90 pages about me, okay? And it, most of it's junk. But people read that and they wonder, well, who is she? You know, maybe she is, you know, you know trying to, you know, something wrong with her or something like that. So well, one of the really big bad. things uh, with, uh, you know, President Johnson, when he was recruiting Earl Warren, he had tapes in the White House, too. That's and right. the History Channel did play them once. I remember seeing them probably way back in the 80s, and I was just flabbergasted that this can come out in the open. So he's calling Earl Warren, and he's appointing him to the Warren Commission. Yeah. And Warren refuses. He doesn't want to do it. And Johnson comes out with his good southern drawl. I'm not asking you. I am telling you. You are going <laughs> to do this. Yes. And this is what you're going to find. Yep. So wait a minute, wait a minute. This is like a week after Kennedy's shot or, or even sooner. You, this yeah. is what you're going to find. Well, you haven't found anything because you, you, you haven't even been appointed to the commission yet. But he knows that his breathing privileges depend on doing exactly what he's told to do. And if he you know, gets away from that, veers off in any way, shape, or form, he's going to get the same treatment that he knows so many other people have got. Well, okay, we've got years and year, 40 years, 50 years coming. We're going to have all the, if it's fancy and it's on with lots of computers and it's on TV and there's, there's music from Danny Elfman or something, you know the government's behind it and they're going to give you another song and dance, and they'll say, or they'll say, this can, case can never be solved. That is not true. People who have read me and Lee say, at last, we have the answers, and when you read the book, you'll see what I'm talking about. All the questions, if you know the case, they're answered in the book, and we do know a lot about who was involved in uh, the murder of Kennedy. Lee Oswald, when I first said that Kennedy, uh, that he saved Kennedy's life, they said, well, he, look, he may have been, you know, framed and all that, but that's going too far. But, and I stood alone for years, and then along came um, recently, relatively recently, just a few years ago, Abraham Bolden, Secret Service agent appointed by President Kennedy, the first black one to do, be appointed, and a very special man, and I, 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 I love him dearly. And uh, he has come forward with information, yes, in Chicago. Again, we have this connection with Dr. Mary Sherman in New Orleans with Chicago. She wanted to save Kennedy, too. Lee was working with her. I was working with Dr. Sherman. You find out that a person named Lee saved Kennedy's life by informing the FBI at his own, the risk of his own life in Chicago, and they arrested four men, uh, and Kennedy's life was saved in Chicago. And this same young man had been invited into the assassination ring, and it started in New Orleans. Because of our Get Castro project, he was always pretending to be pro-Castro. His work, one of the things he was doing, was finding anybody who was pro-Castro. They were getting their pictures taken when they took those flyers. We even have films of Lee handing out the flyers because they were taking pictures mm -hmm. of the people who are taking the flyers and keeping them. And they hunted down a whole bunch of pro-Castro people. Uh, some of them they deported. A number of them they... Uh, found more information about and watched so they could find more of them. 
So we had a whole operation going there. And uh, now Lee is uh, on the outside. They say, oh, you know, he's a communist. He's pro-Castro. No, he was working very hard to, to protect our country from pro-Castro spies in New Orleans. Well, you worked uh, for Roswell Park, too, didn't you? Yes, that was early on. Um, that was with Dr. George Moore. And Roswell Park is, all these men worked together, Dr. Moore and Dr. Deal and um, Dr. Oxner were all good friends. They all testified together uh, in court cases against lung cancer. You know, if, if you smoke, you're going to get lung cancer. And uh, so they worked together. And I knew all of them. And, they, of course, they mentored me and, and uh, took good care of me and used me and then threw me away. Because one of the uh, things that, uh, you know, even in the modern world, like Roswell Park is affiliated with uh, Hauptman Woodward. Yeah, well. And the CEO of that uh, organization was killed in a plane crash in Florida in 2008. We had a big plane crash in Buffalo recently as well where the husband of a researcher at Roswell Park was killed in that crash. And it just seems, you know, people who are working at the cutting edge of these tools for assassination or mass genocide oh, we've, are we, still yes. on the, uh, we the have many so this has never died. Yeah. Biochemists, bioengineers, genetic, especially people who work with genetic ma manipulation. Uh, we have no business, business, we don't, of injecting human genes into sheep, for example. And how far are they going to go till they're walking on their hind legs? You know, we have a problem here. We have an ethical problem here. And unfortunately, yes, you talked about paperclip, Operation Paperclip and what we've got. We had a whole bunch of people come in who had no compunction about using human beings as if they were test tubes. And when you get to that kind of state, uh, then it doesn't matter how you treat them either, you know, or, what you, or there's no uh, sanctity of life left. No, no, no. No sacredness. Like on the website, we have, uh, you know, some material about Barbara Marks Hubbard, and she attended the Gorbachev Foundation yes. meeting in 95. And in her book, The Book of Co-Creation, uh, co she says that they have inherited godlike powers. And she made a statement where she says that she is in charge, or people like her are in charge of God's selection process. So they have elevated themselves. They talk about us as yeah. defective seeds. Well, you know, and, Yeah, and we're eaters. We're bottom feeders. This you know. is this is not a good thing, and uh, this is something people have oh, to become on, aware of. Oh, come on, come on. We've got to get rid of all these people. We only need a half a billion people to service the top 1%. We don't need all these these polluters. We, you know, let's get rid of them. After all, the, the, the middle class began as servants to the upper class because the lower class didn't have the new education and didn't have the ability to make their caravans and become rich merchants and bring in all the goods and services to the rich. Then we enter the computer age, okay, after we get through the industrial age, where the middle class is no longer needed because we have robotics now and you can have stupid people, lower class people, maybe for a few years they'll be trained to do a little bit of work, then they put them right back in the lower class and it's just like Animal Farm. Yes, Orwell. and one of the shows I did on this, uh, you know, also too, that they're ascending to make a new type of living creature, the totally robotic cyborg and they're working at this at the Ames Research Facility, old Ames okay, Research I, I, Facility I've written in NASA. poems. I, I've got a, a book of poems out there. It's called A Dangerous Thing to Do. And also inscribed, I have Letter to the Cyborgs and Poetry, just because we're headed that direction, of course. Why would you want to have a f 
people running around with fleshy bodies when that means they have to have sleep and they have to eat a certain amount of food. Uh, they're actually talking about creating pills and things so people don't have to take any breaks and sleep. It's, isn't it bad enough that we're on a plane now with a computer? You can't even get away from work uh, for even a few minutes. He's still having my poor daughter. Um, She's a corporate genius, really. And they fly her from Omaha, Nebraska, to various places. She'll stay a few months. She's a specialist. My poor daughter wanted to meet me before I went overseas. And uh, she had exactly one day, Christmas Day, and that's all they gave her. And wasn't she on her Blackberry half that time when she came to see me? So we're getting strapped in, you know. And, and if you're not useful, uh, they're going to promote wars between masses of, civil, of, of people, you know, have them kill each other off. They don't need them. I, and I they make money coming. off of that. I see that coming. The hard part is to wake up the, uh, the people who aren't as It's very hard. Flor fluoride is a, a, basically a tranquilizer, so that's in the water. You have people are being uh, the, all over the news, you know, you have to take this, that, and the other. You can't have a headache. You've got to have something for it. They don't want you to feel any pain. They want to make sure that you're in a daze and that you go to work and you do your job like a good little girl, a good little boy. And then when we're finished with you, you're not going to get a pension or anything like that. Forget that. Now, Lee Harvey Oswald knew a lot. He was way ahead of his time. He was intelligent. And um, even though he had dyslexia, he managed to get an IQ of 118 uh, points. I'm saying I was attracted to him. We, we had something well, very special. He was a special. handsome man. There's no doubt yes, about so, that. Well, when yeah, I look at his yeah. pictures, he looks like you know some of the classic movie stars of the genre. So well, Jack Ruby is on record. Garrison said he he thought he looked like Paul Newman. Now you're exactly. not going to you have this beat up man they show in the you know films, and they even have retouched to make him look like he's grinning in a certain way, like he's some evil leprechaun. They got the tallest uh, Texas uh, uh, lawman they could, so he would look like a shrimp. But he was 5'9", and if you go to the uh, tables of the time, you'll find 5'9 was the exact average height of the average American male. So this is not a shrimp. He, at 17, he was only 17, he makes it through boot camp in Marines. He's got steel, courage, guts. He's, he wants to, to uh, he loves his country. Why would he join the Marines? When he's seen there with handcuffs on, and he's holding his hands, that fist is because he's in pain. He's just got beaten up. And he's, whole, you know, he's got his hand in the fist. But you look and you see he has his Marine ring on. And the, 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 this, the uh, statement I'm trying to make is this man loved his country. He's been vilified, demonized. And this book tells you who he really was. Okay, well, and we're I coming up to our break time. To know it. So we'll have to okay. cut there, do our break, and uh, okay. you will grease the wheels for the next part. Okay. I, I hope this has been interesting. Oh. Can the federal government take credit for saving us from a plot of its own creation? Tonight, has the federal government kept us safe, or does it just want us to think that it has kept us safe? Since the tragedy of 9-11, numerous crazies and low-level copycats have engaged in criminal behavior which they hoped would result in the deaths, the deaths of innocent Americans and somehow advance their cause of jihad. If you ask the leadership of the FBI, 
most of whose field agents are tireless, dedicated, constitution-supporting professionals. It will tell you that it, the FBI, has foiled about 17 plots to kill Americans during the past 10 years. What it will not tell you is that there have been 20 foiled plots, and of them, three were interrupted by members of the public. The 17 that were interrupted by the feds were created by the feds. We all remember the three that were foiled by diligent Americans, the shoe bomber, the underwear bomber, and the Times Square bomber. In all of these cases, the crimes charged were those of attempting to kill and conspiring with others to do so. In all three of those cases, alert Americans on transcontinental flights or in the streets of New York City told authorities of bizarre behavior or actually subdued the threats themselves. There was no foiling by the FBI. The plotters were, thankfully, bumbling fools who had poorly planned their criminal behavior and who ended up harming no one. All three are serving life terms. But the more curious cases are the remaining 17 for which the federal government has taken credit. They all have a common and reprehensible thread. They were planned, plotted, controlled, and carried out by the federal government itself. In all of these 17 cases, from the Fort Dix 6 to the Lackawanna 7 to the Portland Parade Bomber, the feds found young men of Muslim backgrounds, loners who were bitter at America. They befriended them, cajoled them, and persuaded them that they could change the world by killing Americans. In all these cases, agents worked undercover and portrayed themselves to the targets as Arabs of like un-American mind. In some cases, the federal agents used third parties to act as middlemen. The third parties were typically persons who had been convicted of crimes and who, in return for leniency at their own sentencings, were willing to work with the same feds who prosecuted them in order to help the feds and trap whomever else those feds were pursuing. Thus, in all 17 of these cases, because of the command and control of federal agents, no one was ever in danger, no one was harmed, no bomb went off, and no property was damaged. But in all those cases, the losers whom the feds targeted each believed that they were interacting with real plotters who would bring them cash and bombs. As we know, sometimes the cash arrived, but the bombs never did. The defendants were essentially charged and convicted for playing a game with federal agents. The most recent of those gener uh, government-generated plots was revealed yesterday. It has a new twist because it allegedly involves agents of the intelligence apparatus of the government of Iran. It too was destined to go nowhere as the feds monitored and taped every move made by their target as he interacted with federal agents whom he stupidly believed to be drug dealers and co-conspirators. Today the feds themselves revealed that high officials of Iran's government knew nothing of this. Of course the neocons have demanded bombs on Tehran no matter what the government there knew. And this plot came to light the day before Attorney General Holder himself was subpoenaed by Congress in the Fast and Furious case. You get the picture. Are any of these plots criminal? Can the government just pick and choose whom to seduce and then lower the boom at the right time and arrest its would-be Confederates? Is this a proper and efficient use of law enforcement resources? The answers to these questions are obvious and they are not good. The courts have made this legal so long as the target of these plots had a mental predisposition to cause harm. But none of this keeps us safe. All of this makes us less free, as any one of us can be entrapped. And we are fools if we praise the government for exposing a plot of its own creation and saving us from a danger that never existed. Can the government break the law in order to enforce it? 
Well, when it does, it becomes a law unto itself, and the rule of law dies as the feds decide whom to target and whom to trap. Think about it. Are we really safe in a false sense of security? Why do we pay the government to trick us into believing it is keeping us safe? When no one is harmed and the government controls the plot, aren't we just punishing someone for his thoughts? And in a free society, aren't free people free to think as they wish? This must be so. Because if the government can punish our thoughts, there are no limits to its power. From New York, defending freedom every night of the week. So long, America.